Guys, welcome to the podcast. Before we get started, as ever, remember that all the information you're about to hear is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any illnesses or diseases. Please make sure to consult your healthcare practitioner before implementing any of the things we may discuss in this podcast. Speaking of education, if you're an exercise professional, coach or anyone working within the realms of health and fitness, when you're done listening here, make sure to head on over and check out our education portal at www themusclementors.co.uk if you like us and truly care about the well-being of your clients about getting access to the best and most up-to-date information in the areas of exercise mechanics hypertrophy sleep improving your online coaching services and much much more then be sure to join up you'll gain access to endless hours of content focused around everything you need to become a truly elite coach and get your clients in the best physical shape possible this is all in the form of video lectures weekly live education sessions and study groups you also get early access to our podcast and access to any exclusive Q&A segments we do with our guests. The content never stops on the portal. It's not a one-off course. It's an ever-evolving learning platform designed to give you the best information possible in this area. Head on over to our website and become part of our epic community, full to the brim of other professionals who, like yourself, are focused on providing the best health and physique-related results for their clients. Join us and them and gain the resources, support and accountability you need to become the elite of the health and fitness industry. For now, though, grab yourself a pen and paper and enjoy the show. Howdy, guys. Welcome back to the Muscle Mentors podcast. Um, the three musketeers minus James are back, um, which is interesting. because I mean, where's Cal? Anyway, um, the um, I think Cal will hopefully make an appearance again soon. He's just busy with prep clients and stuff, so he'll be back. Um but, uh, but yeah, um, we're back for another. I mean, we're basically finishing off the Q and A's, like the Q, like the Q and A that we've been doing in terms of the questions we pulled in across the last few weeks. Um, and um, we've got, I mean, like four or five ones today that should be hopefully quite interesting to discuss, especially the last two. So stay tuned for that. <laughs> um, like they're going to blow your mind. Um, <clears throat> But no, first question. I mean, well, firstly, I haven't said for those listening, it's the, the three musketeers are Paul, Ross, and I. Um, how are you guys doing? Good, right. mate. Very good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I'm good. Um, I believe, Jen, I mean, I mean, Paul and I, I know, are quite tired. So, but... That's true. Ross is very chirpy, mainly yeah. because. In fairness, last week I wasn't so chirpy. I was noticeably uh, derailed last week, but uh, we're good. Got some caffeine in. Feeling Gucci. Can you pour that monster into a glass? I'm a very sophisticated individual, boss. <laughs> for those, for those <laughs> listening to this, Ross has poured a green monster into a glass. I know, I've know. i never seen anyone drink monster from a glass before, so he's a bit... <laughs> you're not as sophisticated as us back home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unless it's in a champagne glass, you're not doing it. <laughs> you should just have it in some kind of floof. <laughs> I'm going to do this for next week just to level up. Exactly. Whiskey glass, just like, hmm, yeah. Because it's because it was cracks and bumps in the can. I don't like drinking it if there's like bumps and all in it. So, weird like that. Actually, yeah, when you said, I've got caffeine and you pulled out a green drink, I was like, Aloe vera juice? Like <laughs> <laughs> my nan used to drink that and it was great. Yeah, and, and as I lumps oh. on it. <laughs> oh. Go yeah. the tree like the tram. Yeah, phenomenal. Anyway. Um, but no, so that's how we are. I mean, as a result, me and Paul are just gonna go for a nap. I mean, Paul's already got his bed ready behind him. Um, yeah. 
Ross is going to take this one. Um, yeah, I was going to read just the Hobbit. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, so question. First question we got. So who this who this one was from? Um, Ross yeah. was him. Michael, I, I believe. Michael, Michael something. Anyway, well, the program his it was Instagram handle was at Michael something. <laughs> yeah, we'll call him at Michael something. I like to call him. That's phenomenal. Hell of a name. Yeah, I'll go. We'll, we'll give him some um, credit later on. <laughs> so I'm gonna look like I don't know. Um, so anyway, but what are the like? Are there any program differences or programming differences um, between prep and phases? Yeah, there would be um, in the sense that Wait, it's next, a question. next question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ross got really excited about <laughs> this question. Okay, so we I like these questions. Really. I, like, I like these questions. Yeah, it would do. Like you have to understand that when they prep, you're going to be kind of guaranteeing an incurred level of fatigue over time. And um, so I often find that like when you're kind of pre-programming deloads and stuff like that, or potentially D volumes, if you want to call them that you're probably going to preempt a certain level of fatigue during a prep in the sense that you know that as you get deeper and deeper into it, the level of fatigue you're going to kind of incur is going to increase. Um, and comparatively then to an off season, you're kind of going to be waiting for that fatigue to crop itself and kind of show itself in those signs of central fatigue rather than preempting it. Um, so I think that's going to be a big one for you, you know, the level of risk that you're likely to run so far as how much fatigue you're going to build up within a prep um, is likely more guaranteed. So you might hear the period, you know, where you're kind of escalating volume or potentially just working with higher intensities over the course of maybe like a six to eight week period. And then you'll kind of preempt a period of taking volume down or taking intensity down because you can't really afford, you can, but like in most cases, you don't want to take a full deload and kind of rest up totally on a prep, especially if you're in that kind of closer proximity to the shows itself. Um, and maybe even a little bit behind, which most people tend to be. So being able to kind of preempt that level of fatigue in order to make sure you don't like kind of almost tank yourself absolutely. Um you probably would have a little bit of a difference there. And potentially you can look at exercise selection there if you just want to kind of talk about that one as well potentially. You know, if you're looking at, you know, kind of trying to manage structures as you're getting to that level of fatigue, you're potentially more compromised. Potentially you get closer to the show. You know, you might be using more kind of stable environments here as well. You can look at that. And again, it's, it's a multi-layer question. So it's a good one. But yeah, for sure. Uh, that's definitely something I'd factor in. Exercise selection would come into it on that basis, as well as you know, a number of other things in terms of, you know, if we are going to be loading people in certain ways that we might incur more like muscle damage, you know, and things, you know, we, we can kind of use tempos and things like that to bias different parts of the... Or different portions portions of the contraction. So whether it's like the shortening phase or the lengthening phase, like they'll potentially do different things. Um, I mean, we did go through this the other day that there is nothing magic about the lengthening phase. That actually, well, seemingly nothing magic about you know lengthening a tissue or eccentrics, as some people would call, or plyometric muscle actions, as some other people would call them. Um, they don't like cause muscle damage in themselves, but they tend to like. Um, come like like generally accompanied by a greater amount of force that's put through the tissue and that's what potentially causes doms and, and muscle damage and stuff but anyway so that those things consider i mean one thing i would add is is like in a in an off-season state we're not like fatigue immune or like immune from fatigue yeah. we are potentially more fatigue resistant provided we've got like certain things in place like you know obviously we have more food we potentially have um like more time to sleep there's generally maybe a bit less stress on us hopefully um i mean that's that's kind of making some assumptions but the so you know you're not you know 
you're still capable of incurring a similar level of training fatigue in an off season. So the same things may apply in terms of the phases you go through with training. Um, but obviously you're not having this kind of creeping, like, you know, this fatigue that's kind of creeping up on you in the background chronically as a result of being in a crazy calorie deficit. But like, it would still be worth, you know, it, you know, in an off season, like obviously we have deloads, you know, from a training perspective. But then one of the things people don't often speak about in an off season is deloading from a food perspective in terms of like coming out of a surplus for periods of time and not putting too much stress on your, yeah. you know, um, your digestive system. And like, you know, when people lose their appetite, obviously it's an easy way to, easy thing to do. And you typically see people doing like brief periods of intense calorie restriction to sort those things out. But but in terms of the training programming, I mean, it is generally all the stuff Ross just said. I mean, you, would you add anything, Paul? Is Paul frozen? Paul or... could be frozen. Paul could be frozen. <laughs> and if anyone's watching the video, this is the funniest frame of Paul ever. <laughs> oh, is he back now? He's back. Are you back, Paul? Is there a massive delay now? What's going on here? <laughs> People listening or watching it, like Paul's just like nodding along. I <laughs> <laughs> have to continue on here until Paul bounces back. I'm assuming it's his internet. No, I'm not editing this out, people. You no, know. <laughs> please don't. <that's> so <laughs> if you want to have a laugh, please go on YouTube and watch this. Um, oh, God, no, I mean, I mean, Ross, would you add anything else to that then? Um, no, I pretty cover it with that. Like it's. It is. It's that thing of within a prep, you're you're you got that fatigue creeping up all the time. You know, it's always going to be kind of coming up slowly. And again, even within an off season, you are still going to have that fatigue slowly making its way up. Um, but again, you know, potentially preempting it as much as you would in a prep is potentially not something you would do. But again, it's a matter of understanding kind of when it's going to be the most applicable time to take that. You know, and again, within a prep, it's going to be pretty more preemptive. And then within an off season, you're probably kind of waiting for those signs to creep up, you know, loss of appetite, potentially higher cravings, you know, and again, just waiting for the period that says, yeah, it's probably time for me to take a rest, you know, when the prep, you're probably going to preempt it. And, and, and some people might say, like, oh, but I want to be preemptive in an off season. Um, you, you could implement the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Some people do. But yeah, but then equally, like, you know, you're less, the, I mean, the preemptive, like the reason why it's important to preempt in a prep or potentially more important is because you're time pressured. Like an off yeah. really often that time pressure to do stuff. So if you get to a point where you're like, actually, I need to take a break. Cool. I've not got a competition in four weeks. So I've got it like now kind of adjust things for massively. You know, you can say, oh yeah, I'll, um, you know, I need a break. I'll just pull back. Well, no, no reason to kind of stress about that. Whereas in a prep, you kind of over, you know, overstep it and overreach and do all that sort of stuff. And then you go, oh shit, no, I definitely need to to deload now. But you're like at a pretty crucial point where deload would actually derail some of the progress. Then maybe that's not the best idea. Um, I think I'm back, but I've no idea. What <laughs> yeah, you're back. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm just the, frozen. The first thing happening. you need to do when we go is you have to watch the video because that was probably the funniest 24 seconds. Did you, hear, uh, um, did you hear everything we were saying? No, no, got no, nothing. I tried different Wi-Fi networks. I tried a hotspot. I did web, <laughs> and then I was like, Paul, what's your thoughts? And you were just like, and then, and, <laughs> and, and then like just nodding a lot, and then you just froze, and we were like, oh, it's so funny. We just decided to leave. Yeah, it. we obviously got you as you fully accepted that you had no internet, so you were just like, yeah, what's happening? <laughs> I was having to stop myself from swearing and being like, fucking things not working. <laughs> 
So I was like, I know my end isn't working, but I don't know if it's coming through yet. So you might have just got this muttering. So I was like, all right, I won't mutter my way through this. I'll just see if I can find another, jump on the other Wi-Fi, try my hotspot, nothing. So I was like, they could be saying anything at this point. I've no idea. So whatever they said, I think it was great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, bro. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, we won't repeat what we said. We were asking for your input, but the you kind of your internet screwed that one up. So sorry, mate. Yeah. And being that I, you may have already covered whatever I would have to add, it's not really worth. I don't think I might ask you that question. What would you add? Go. <laughs> Depending on what you've already said, what would I add? No, no, would I... Just have a go. <laughs> yeah, you guys will have covered everything. I think I, I saw there from Ross beginning, just talking about the potential for you know fatigue's going to be potentially higher uh, during. Uh, a prep period or at least our capacity to handle volumes or intensities to recover from that and how much we can get done before we start running out just from um, experience with clients and stuff you're going to find their energy level through a session is generally going to be lower so even if they could handle a higher amount their capacity to push a bunch of sets is going to be kind of lower so lowering that volume and shit and i'm assuming shit you've already covered in the kind of answer i don't know if we went into it on that so you just added a nice little point there Oh, sweet. We spoke about it in more of a generic way, but obviously, like session to session. Even, even things like, you know, you weigh a lot less and you've got less fat tissue around places. So your joint support is lower than it would be. So your strength output goes down and all that kind of stuff as well. So I think I'm, I, I, I came in at one point when I heard Ross mention maybe exercise selection changing. But some of those things where in an off season, maybe you can handle things that are a bit more aggressive on your joints more than you can late stage prep. Um, that could even be a potential consideration. Valid. Sweet. Valid. Sweet. So hopefully that answers that one. Um, I think, I, don't, I mean, the actual practical takeaways there are pretty much everything we've said, but just play around with it based on the situation. And, and like the severity of the deficit, you know, if someone's prepping and they're not that you know, crazy deficit, then just be reckless, mate. <laughs> Who cares? Or, you know, or their early prep. You're like, oh, it doesn't really make any difference. Wait, four weeks in, I don't care. For the, re- for the record, <laughs> yeah, for the record, do not be reckless. That was a joke. Like, if someone, be reckless. If someone had that, like, did they just say be reckless? Like, no. Yeah, see what your body can handle by being reckless. <laughs> <laughs> You'll find your limits soon enough. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so next question we had there, we, I mean, I hope that one was answered well enough, um, was, I mean, I mean, I don't know the exact wording of the question, but it was basically leg press versus hack squat versus pendulum squat. What are the different considerations with each? Ooh, that's a fun question. Uh, I mean, I would look, the leg press and the hack squat are much more similar. They're all the same. They're all the same. They're all the same. <laughs> there are no considerations pushing movements that involve going into kind of a squatting position hell i mean just fuck them all just do a back squat there's no need for these other things that's that's the same no i think look the hack squat and the leg press are both on an inclined plane they're both on a slope the pendulum squat isn't that it's working around an arc so there's a closer similarity between leg press considerations and hack squat considerations luke is currently playing with a ruler i feel like uh, would be better but that like if you think path of motion on a pendulum squat would be that path of motion on a leg press is or a hack squat is so what you can if you if you're just listening to this because running his hand up a ruler yeah. to demonstrate the leg yeah, press I'm always, I'm always trying to push people to watch these on youtube because i think it's a better place to watch it so like i'm just going to throw those in there and like get the people listening to be like, oh fuck like yeah definitely. luke's currently wearing the string vest and dressed as borat 
Uh, <laughs> if you'll only know that if you check out the video. I'm also now doing a funny dance um, again. <laughs> uh, but I think one of the difficulties possibly is, you know, we, we say leg press and that almost implies that all leg presses are the same. And actually what I've just said isn't strictly true. Not all leg presses work on an incline. Like the leg press that Ross uses regularly actually works on an, on an arc itself as well. It's not a linear path of motion. For those um, who don't follow Ross, um, I don't blame you. <laughs> 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 what a dick. <laughs> um, the, um, the, it, that's a, we're talking about a lever system leg press there. So one of the ones where you load the plates at the bottom and they'll pivot on an axis as, as you kind of press a plate in the, you know, press on a plate in the same direction ish that you would, and like orientation, you'd be on a 45 degree, but the system that the plates are moving on is an axis, you know, lever system. Not yeah, so, so we look at these leg presses and it's like, well, not all leg presses are comparable to each other. So it could be that the person asking this question has a particular type of leg press that is challenging for them in a particular manner. Maybe it forces them into a certain hip angle that is, you know, for myself, if I'm at a 90 degree hip angle because of the leg press and I've got no way of adjusting that, my range of motion is going to be like, four inches it's really not great before i run out and i've just got to move with the spine if i wanted to get any lower and whereas someone else in the same machine isn't going to have that issue and they're going to be able to go nice and deep and low and they're going to be fine through that so some of these questions might be well how does your physiology meet the machine in question and so is it that that leg press is just poorly designed? Is it that it just doesn't suit you and your architecture and that hack squat that you've got happens to suit you better because the, the foot plate angle allows you to get into a different amount of dorsiflexion and plantar flexion as you go down to the bottom. So you can fold up well within it. Like the hack squat I use uh, at the gym I train at, the Icarus one. Okay, it's got a 36 degree incline, but one of the big bits is the angle of the foot plate allows me to fold up quite nicely in that versus say the Cybex version of it, which about 45 degrees. Did we measure at 46 degrees, I want to say? Yeah, I measured more yeah. Right, so, for, so we've got a difference in 36 degrees, 46 degrees. So, you know, in terms of the load difference, that means the 45 degree one, let's just round to 45 because I know this off the top of my head, it's about 71% of the load, whereas that 36 degree one is 58% of the load. So partially what makes it different is how much I'm dealing with. So it might feel like, oh, that's Cybex. God, I'm a lot weaker on the Cybex. It's like, no, not necessarily. It's that you're actually dealing with a different load related to that slope. But another part of it is like, well, how much do I fold up in that particular one? If it allows me to fold up more, I'm going to get a bigger drop off in my strength potentially as I go through that. But maybe it feels less comfortable to get into certain positions on certain ones so is it the machine that's presenting you with the difficulty or is it how you meet the machine that presents you with that difficulty so that'd be the first things i'm starting to think of with leg presses and hack squats they're not all the same what's the slope of the angle how do you fold up within them? the pendulum squat then presents us with something quite different and i've been waffling enough so i'll let luke or ross waffle a little bit about the pendulum that was beautiful firstly <laughs> <laughs> but yeah um I mean, pendulum, why, do you want to take pendulum, Ross, or do you want me to say No, you're far away, mate. Okay, cool. I don't actually know what you said there, but I'm assuming... You can, I said you could fire away. <laughs> <laughs> Some Irish slur. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, I mean, so basically everything Paul just said there, 
um, applies to the pendulum because they're exactly the same movement. Moving on. <laughs> no. So as we said, like the pendulum, um, you know, it, it's working on a lever system. So we're not moving on that um, that inclined plane. So we're not dealing with you know percentages of the load. You know, we can't use that kind of calculation to work out what we're dealing with. You know, with that, we'd be kind of calculating the the torque um, that you know on the axis of the machine. So when we load plates on the back of a pendulum, um, the distance of that lever relative to the axis that it's you know it's moving around. You know, that's how we calculate you know the amount of load. You know, in terms of, I mean, what's the unit for torque again? Paul, remind me. Kilo. Uh, it's kilograms per meter squared per second squared. One kilo, yeah, but anyway, so some funky unit would be slightly. No, it's a newton meter, I think. Yeah, so you know, we, it'd be a slightly different unit to the, how we'd calculate the force on an inclined plane, um, which would be in newtons or kilos. Um, but anyway, the the point there is the changes throughout the range depend more on how the machine's built, the length of that lever, um, whether it has a counterweight. And the counterweight, you know, we get some pendulums that have a counterweight you know, that's like, you know, the, the Atlantis one, for instance, that counterweight is a set weight. Um, but that's there to basically, you know, as we drop through the movement, the, you know, so the side that we're at kind of will kind of dip a little bit closer to the axis in terms of its relative distance. And, and again, this might be easier to visualize if you're watching a video in terms of like a seesaw motion and the counterweight, if we imagine there's like an axis, an axis here counterweight is going to kind of move further away as we go through the like the eccentric um and that counterweight is there to like offload essentially counter the weight of the the other side of the um that seesaw so the load that we're like the the arm that you know the lever that we're pushing into um which can affect the profile somewhat if you've got an a a pendulum squat that you can actually load plates on that counterweight you potentially can do a lot more on that front. There's quite a few out there that they haven't got a set weight on the counterweight. There's like an actual loading pin and you can adjust yeah. that. Paramount, I think, is the one that has. Yeah, I mean, I've never personally had access to that, but I'm sure yeah, quite cool to play around with that because if you were able to do the right calculations, you could probably counter the weight map like perfectly and get quite a nice profile there or like close to perfectly maybe. It'd be quite hard because the counterweight's always a lot shorter. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so to actually counter the weight of the longer arm that you're putting plates on, you would need like significantly more weight on the counterweight and whether you'd want to fully counter it, probably not. Some of the benefits and reasons why the pendulum for a lot of people, it feels so brutal is because there's such a high propensity for like inertial effects throughout the movement. So as you go through the eccentric, because of the length of the, the lever that you're basically applying effort into, that thing, there's so much rotational inertia in that thing, it wants to basically kind of accelerate round in an arc, um, depending on whichever yeah. direction you're moving in. You know, if, if we go through the eccentric, we're not even that much control, you know, a fair amount of control, but not that much. You know, the you know, even like a three second eccentric, we're going to be dealing with a lot of force at the bottom. Yeah, of we, I mean, we can probably, because I suspect a bunch of people listening to this won't be too familiar with what the hell rotational inertia means as a, as a concept and stuff. So, Inertia, really, we could think of that an object generally wants to keep doing whatever it is currently doing. So if you've got an object sitting at rest, it wants to stay sitting at rest. 
If an object is traveling in a straight line, it wants to keep traveling in a straight line. Now, it, obviously, from our own experience, we know that objects don't just keep traveling in a straight line, but that's because friction is acting on them. There's some air drag. There's these forces acting upon it. But if you took this out into space and we just... Recognize these terms. This is Newton's law of like when Newton's first law, third law, first, first, um, yeah, which some people call the law of inertia. Yeah, carry on. Yeah, and inertia is a, a, a what's known as a property of mass. So mass is inertia in a linear sense. A, an object with a big big mass is more resistant to a force than an object with a small mass. If we apply a force of let's say 100 newtons, I shove on something with 100 newtons worth of force. If it's a Newton's second law, this could get squirrely for people, but see if we can follow roughly along. A force is equal to a mass times an acceleration. So if I apply 100 newtons to a mass of 10 kilos, it accelerates at a certain speed. If I apply that same 100 newton force to an object with a much larger mass, it accelerates more slowly. And if I apply that same force to a much smaller mass, it accelerates much more rapidly. And if you imagine maybe standing on like a dock and you're about to push a couple of boats off, if you push a really small boat, you can accelerate it quite rapidly. If you try and shove a yacht off, you can apply the same force. It's not going to go away as quickly. And that's because its mass is much greater. And inertia, that feature where the object wants to keep doing what it is doing, is therefore more resistant to the change you're trying to impart on it. So an object with a big mass is harder to get going, but it's also harder to stop. Like it's gonna be easier for you to stop a small boat coming at you than a big boat coming at you, as you kind of are familiar. Now in rotational terms, when we're on that pendulum, rotational inertia is the same concept. An object wants to keep doing whatever it is currently doing, but this time it's rotating around an arc. And rotational inertia is a little bit more complicated. In the pendulum squat, we can simplify it slightly and say that it's related to the mass times, this is fun now, the square of the radius. So the square of the radius just means how far away from the axis is that weight stuck on. So, so if it's a meter... Like the moment arm, well, I say that, well, the lever arm actually in this instance, right? Yeah. yeah. And so what we'd end up having, if we say that rotational inertia is also related to how fast the angle, the angle is changing, but let's go with the rotational inertia component first. Mass times the radius squared is equal to rotational inertia. So rotational inertia is the combination of mass and the square of the radius. So if the mass was 10 kilos, but the radius was five meters, well, oh, that sounds like the mass is bigger than the radius, but that would be a false way of looking at it because it's the five meters squared, which is five times five, that R becomes 25, whereas the M stays at 10. So the bigger impact for rotational stuff is the distance you place that thing away from the axis. And therefore it wants to keep moving. So if it's quite a distance away, A, it's further away and on a big arc, it means it travels faster because it's further out on that arc as it goes through its excursion but it also is more resistant to change. It takes more force to stop that bad boy traveling. So tempo considerations on a pendulum squat become much more of an important uh, thing. And I think that's one of the things that people really experience when they drop into the bottom of their pendulum, they're used to using the same kind of tempos that they use for everything else. And so now they're in this really weak folded up position and they're having to stop this object that is 
quite far away that's traveling quite rapidly and has this resistance to change because of its rotational inertia and wham you get this exercise that's really difficult at the bottom and then you can move out of that from there so i think that's that's really but, cool. yeah and another way to think about it would i mean there's a couple of scenarios you could you could think about like and um one that might help illustrate the pendulum squat in relation you know to the counterweight let's say but we you know on a seesaw we'd have and again like i'll do a visual for people on the on watching on youtube like if we had a seesaw and we had someone you know who weighed 100 kilos sit out here versus someone who weighed 100 kilos sitting here this guy's going to have way more advantage so relative to the counterweight on a pendulum like that would be like this close to the axis like this guy has a much greater um uh what's the thing well much greater mechanical advantage but also if this was to go through like a that sort of arc like the guy sitting out here is traveling a far greater distance versus the guy that's like traveling here that's actually going a much shorter distance Luke's using a ruler again yeah. <laughs> i guess well to say that would be a good, and uh, you know i think we had a comment someone replied to the, or shared us our, our podcast the other day and they said yeah like I probably need to start watching these on YouTube. Like these sorts of conversations, you know, yeah, sure. I mean, no one's ever going to learn exercise mechanics and this sort of stuff well from listening to a podcast. Yeah, I think we've said that a few times. But like, whenever I get asked, certainly more and more, like, what are the best books and stuff to learn mechanics? I'm like, there aren't any. Like, yeah. unless you're already good at mechanics, I don't think books are going to help you in the fucking slightest. Yeah. Like, you need to or go you and experience. Back, or you've got a background in physics or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's combination of physics and anatomy. You need to be sharp. But another example would be, you know, those um, those like things that I mean, Cal has one where he's thrown the he uses it to throw the ball for the dogs. Those like extended like those oh yeah yeah things that you stick a ball in. It's basically an extension of your arm. Like if you throw a a tennis ball, like your arm is the lever. That thing is kind of rotating. You know around a certain arc and then it has a certain like acceleration as a result and all this stuff in um those the like the, the reason why you can launch tennis balls so much further with those like plastic scooper things that people use to throw balls uh, for dogs is because you basically created a far like larger arc that that object is moving yeah. through which means it has more rotational inertia and all this sort of stuff and it you i've wanted to do uh, as an example of this kind of stuff at some point i want to do a video of like using a one kilo dumbbell for a lat race but attaching it to like a broomstick yeah. and just getting someone who's really strong to like not be able to lift a one kilo dumbbell just to highlight the point that okay yeah. what this thing is asking of you is only partially half in fact related to the the load that's on it the other one is this distance mm -hmm. and let's make a man with stupid comically large brooms yeah. stuck onto his arms struggle to actually lift that guy up into a lat race to be like da -da. Yeah. but yeah same idea yeah and like that you know you think that inertia thing of you know an object wants to keep doing what it's doing when you've got this like a tennis ball going around an arc on the end of this kind of plastic thing it's accelerating really fast then when it kind of leaves the plastic thing it obviously wants to keep moving at the speed that you were just rotating at which is far faster than it was doing previously um if you just had it in your hand and that's kind of the same idea of like in a pendulum squat you've got this load stuck like paul said on this massively long lever um so you're dealing with um you know that thing wants to 
accelerate down pretty fast when you're going through an eccentric and as you go through a concentric and you're lifting that thing it wants to it will get to a point where it wants to accelerate quite fast and you see that you know you can see that when people do pendulums um and they'll like kind of drop into the bottom you know maybe but on the way up um they're kind of struggling 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 and then they'll get into a position where they have a bit more mechanical advantages like they're getting into a stronger position relative to the muscles and joints that are involved and they kind of accelerate really quickly through that last, you know, those last few inches of the movement and the, the you know, the arm that, you know, the lever of the pendulum that they're putting effort into basically just like flies through the last little bit and the machine will kind of shake about a bit because it's shaking about because that load wants to keep going up um, because they've suddenly got, you know, had the ability to accelerate it quite fast. Um, so the takeaway from that is obviously, I mean, the stuff Paul talked about with leg pressing, <laughs> obviously, I say that. The takeaway, <laughs> is, got a terrible habit. Um, the takeaway, maybe not obviously, is that if you're using a pendulum, um, you have probably more to, like, well, definitely far more to consider when it comes to controlling the speed at which you're moving. Um, yeah. And for people that don't have that level of control, might not be the most appropriate um, movement. Like if you're going to get them to go through that movement pattern or like you know, that sort of, um kind of loaded you know quad the quad potential channels. as well the potential for like rapid changes in forces is higher in the pendulum squat yeah. than it is in the hack and leg press. You, you know, people often sometimes see me doing the pendulum that i have and i'll kind of have a banded on one side and banded on the other so i'll actually band the counterweight and anyone who's ever wondering why i'm doing that's to deal with these effects because i would consider myself somewhat strong to the point where if i'm not dealing with those and let's say there is a point within that movement where my ability to control that is maybe a little bit less. So I want to be able to deal with, I uh, want my joints to be able to deal with as little of that negatively as possible. So that's partly one of the reasons I'm doing that is to deal with those effects because as I'm coming down, that weight also on one end wants to keep pushing me down towards the floor, but that counterweight also wants to continue to move along its arc. So being able to manage some of those effects can be quite a valuable thing. Yeah. That's a lie. Ross has tried to band it so that he doesn't have to do any work at any point. It's all just banned. It's just, it literally made myself look better. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we've done. We've definitely. I've. Yeah, I think we covered that. Some videos on that in the past, but yeah, so fascinating. Not a bad one. So people are saying this about. Oh, they're saying the pendulum. That's a nerdy in-depth one, I think. Oh, the pendulum. Pendulum. Potentially, yeah. There's, there's. Not to say that you don't have much to consider with the others, but there is a lot to consider when determining if that exercise is appropriate for people. Um. Anyway, um. Next question. How to implement loaded stretches for hypertrophy when, why, slash why not? Anyone? Okay. You go? So I think the first point is to realize that a loaded stretch is not like ridiculously excessive and probably shouldn't be in the sense that you're not just like walking into these incredibly passive lengthening positions and just kind of hold it That's what people, I mean, if we define what people mean by loaded stretch, it is. That's yeah, what I was going to say. That's kind of what they mean. Yeah, those examples where people are literally like getting a dumbbell and going to the bottom of a dumbbell fly on the bench, letting the dumbbell just like rip their chest. Yeah, Um, but we should probably point out that the the experience of the sensation of a stretch isn't necessarily (laughs) indicative of us being a stretch. Like if you think, let's think triceps for a second. So if I flex my elbow all the way up, well, two of my triceps my medial head and my lateral head and my tricep, they attach onto my humerus. All three of them attach into the olecranon on my elbow. But two of the three guys that are as lengthened as they can possibly get. 
But when I just fold my arm up by my side like this, you don't experience a stretch in the tricep. We all know to get the stretch in the tricep, we got to get that arm above the head, right? Do the old stretch that we used to do in circuits classes and what have you. And that really means we're now putting the long head, this thing that crosses two joints, into its stretch position. And that's suddenly we were where we experienced the stretch. But that hasn't changed the lateral head or the medial head at all. I think Luke's just gone to grab an elbow by the looks of... Oh, I was going to. Um, yeah, go for it, grab it. Like, I don't know. Like, you go, through it. I know it's everything Paul said, so they're attaching them to here. So the, like, the, the long head tricep... There we go. Long head tricep. Um, basically comes up onto the scapula. Something here. is flatting your microphone and making a horrible noise. I think it's the noise of the bones on the table. Yeah, it could be that. Is that better? Yeah, it's better. Um, so up onto the, this bottom here, so the infraglenoid tubercle, that's where the long head attaches. The others don't make it on there. They're basically... Coming on the human. which is on the scapula for those yeah. of you who are just listening to this. So that that is the only thing that matters. So if we kind of change all this stuff with the humerus, the two that attach up around here, they don't get any. There's no influence in terms of changing shoulder position. Like if we just move the elbow, like there, like Paul just said, they're as lengthened as they'll get. Yeah, we don't experience that. So is that a loaded stretch for the tricep does that cause my more hypertrophy for those guys we actually covered this yesterday and learned to uh, loaded stretches could be another one to explore but yesterday on the education portal we did an hour and a half on making sense of sensation um which was the basically we looked at what's responsible for this stretching sensation that people often mistake for being muscle tissue and being like, oh, yeah, this is really good for hypertrophy. And it's like, actually, it's not. Um, most of the things people are getting a sensation in, well, most of the time, um, is their um, like neural tissue, so the nerves that run through these limbs. Um, and tugging on those guys kind of arbitrarily can be quite problematic in cases, or potentially quite problematic. And in certain people, it definitely can be. So if you've got someone dealing with, like, you know, sciatica or an inflamed ulnar nerve, and you give them, uh, so the ulnar nerve is the guy that runs under here. If we go into this position, like we're lengthening that guy pretty drastically. Um, and if that guy's already inflamed for whatever reason, doing a loaded stretch could be pretty catastrophic because um, it's just going to piss him off even more. Same if someone had like sciatica and you were like, I need you to do a loaded stretch to your hamstrings where you just kind of get into the bottom of an RDL or something and just hold that with a silly amount of weight. It's like, like that could be a problem for some people. Yeah, it's not to say that these things don't have validity, but to understand exactly what you're after. Like you're more after an active length of anything. That doesn't sound anywhere near sexy. So, like, you know, people just don't do that. So it's I think it's important to understand just to what proximity you're looking to do that loaded stretch and kind of what you're actually looking to do isn't to, you know, overdo it, so to speak. Find where you can kind of stay within a certain level of control that you know it's in that length of position. If you want to load that and hold that for a position and you're in control and it's safe to do so, then yeah, there's definitely some validity there. But even going to something that's too passive. Yeah, I think even too lengthened and current a little bit more muscle damage, potentially some immune drop off there as well. You have to become aware of exactly what you're looking to achieve within that, you know. Was the question about hypertrophy or was it just about implementing loaded stretches? It was loaded stretches. Hypertrophy. Yeah, and that's the thing I would say, because there'll be people listening to this who are like, well, I've done loaded stretches and I'd say it works and so-and-so says it works and so-and-so says it works. It's like, I'm not, you know, by taking, like if we did that sort of tricep stretch or 
the one that people do for the pecs, which again, the sensation they're getting is they're fucking stretching all the nerves that come out of their brachial plexus and go down their arm. And that's what they think is like, you know, their, their biceps and their, um, their chest. But it's like, it's actually your brachial plexus that you're pulling on there. Like there, you're, you're pulling on all these tissues at the same time. So we can't say you're not putting your pecs under tension doing that. I mean, you're not, you're not putting your triceps under tension. You will be doing that question is do you need to go into that position to to like yeah like basically does it confer a benefit yeah do you need the sensation of stretching the nerve to kind of get any benefit because what you're basically ultimately doing is putting more volume through the muscle tissue in the form of a loaded um length and range isometric Um, regardless of how you do it what often what's basically accompanying it is this other sensation where you're tugging on your like the neural tissue and you're getting a response from the nociceptive system that's like, mm, don't know about that. It's the same reason why people do hamstring stretches and they can only hold it for a little bit of time. And when it's really new, they're like, that feels fucking horrible because you're basically tugging on the nervous system um, and the nervous system's like, well, that feels weird. No. Even if you are listening well, you're- to it, fire away, man. Go ahead. Do you, think- go, go. you start. Do you start? No, fair enough, I'm, I'm, I'm cooler anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> so, like, even if you are somebody who does want to try and experiment with this kind of thing, like just be aware of the fact that you probably, as Luke said, you don't need to go into the level of range that you probably think you do or that somebody has said you do. And again, it's, it's not that these things aren't valid and they don't have application, but just becoming aware, like even if you look at it, like if you were to go into a more appropriate position where it is that kind of length and range isometric, there's probably even a certain increase in that acute tolerability to that. Like and the benefits could actually be higher. Because when you're like stretching out these nerves alongside these muscle tissues, like the tolerability that within that is probably lesser. So if you were to bring it to something that was safer, probably more applicable, you could probably hold it there and potentially get more benefit like what you're actually after, you know, compared to going out, stretching out these nervous tissues, like and just having to drop it up 30, 40 seconds. And the, and the tissue yeah. will still fatigue. Like. Yeah, for sure it will. Like, you know, and it's not going to be a case of, you know, oh, I'm fucking everything up here. And, you know, this feels like it's more extreme. Like, it's more extreme because what you're supposed to be loading isn't being loaded. Something that doesn't want to be in that position is getting the fucking shit kicked out of it. Like, so just pull it back a little bit and get more out of it, you know? As always, it's going to depend a little bit on, you know, what that person means by stretch and yeah. what their capacity for holding a position is. Like, are we talking the very end of their active range just on the cusp? cool, that's a different thing than really exceeding that and hanging out there. And then there's a question of, well, is there a big difference for this person between the end of their active range and where they can passively be taken to? In which case, do we want to close that gap? And this might be a way if we hang out just on the cusp of what they can control of closing the gap. Do they play a sport that, and I think we've mentioned Skinny Gaz before, doing a whole bunch of mental shit for jujitsu purposes or because he's a bit mental, right? In order to see what he can do in, in various extreme end range positions to improve his tolerance to those things. It's always going to come back to these boring questions of who, for what goal, what do they have, what do they own, what do they tolerate so to use it, an it, it depends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We went through it on the portal yesterday, like I said, and, and it like the takeaway from this segment should be, you know, exercise professionals or PTs online coach whatever you're going to be like prescribing loaded stretches or exercise in general and i would i would actually make that case that you should have a basic understanding of nerves um where they're not that complicated people think oh my god there's loads of nerves in every tissue it's really like if you get a basic anatomy but they're not that complicated to see where things attach and in fact if i share screen um i just pulled this out because this is what we go went through yesterday 
there's some cool resource out there and you like basic illustrations like this like we may you know no exercises like this is a classic position we've been on like a sit and reach test um the sensation we get there is not really the hamstring stretching and, and what you're testing is the extensibility of like some of the Do you want to describe what you're showing here yeah, by the way there's a guy and it's really like jump on the youtube if you, if you want to have a look at this but it's basically a guy who's kind of flexed over through his spine in hip flexion knee extension similar to where you'd be on like a sit and reach test if people are doing that or if you're doing a you know for people that want to have another look we, this was some stuff we looked at a seated leg curl where you're bent over the seat or a 45 degree leg press where you're hunched over you know this is some of the stuff we explored like people only look at these positions usually with an appreciation for oh what's the muscles doing in this situation but it's like there's way more inside us than just muscle um, and we got to if you were thinking of that you know i'm sure most of us have, have seen people at this point doing a seated leg curl and reaching over as far as they can because they experience more of a sensation of something like a stretch near their hamstring. And so obviously that must be better for the hamstring because we experience this sensation. But, and again, I encourage you guys to go on the portal and watch the live that Luke did yesterday, but you'll start to see with the pictures that are on the screen now and the use of that sciatic nerve and the fact we can, oh, we can see it lengthening. And actually, if, if this person was to pull their toes towards their shin while doing this thing, it's likely going to increase that sensation in the hamstring. But wait, my ankle has fuck all to do with my hamstring. So how does that happen? Oh, it turns out it happens through this nerve relationship. Ooh, maybe that means I don't need to do this. And again, that's why Luke called it making sense of sensation. And he's very happy about that title. There's the thing, it's the same reason why, you know, people do toe raised RDLs. We brought that up another diagram in those slides where I've, I've made a version of that. Like that sensation they're getting, they're like you know, if you stop to think about it, and that's this is a classic reason why people need to study muscular attachments more because people, a lot of people won't be aware of where the hamstrings attached. They might actually think that it does something at the ankle to change that. The, um, it goes down to the foot. You get the stretching <laughs> sensation on the back of the thigh around the knee slightly above that when you like flex the foot up during an RDL. So what other tissues are involved in, in like that, making that happen? Your fucking, you know, ischial sciatic nerve or tibial nerve. You know, the, these are, these are the things and that you're putting a lot of stress on and like the, you know, there's, um we went through it in that presentation saying that, you know, if you, um, the, like the force that's put through the nervous system on a daily basis is ridiculous. Um, so when we add to that in extreme ways in training, long term, we have the potential to for issues to arise. And that's, you know, potentially what can happen in some of these instances where people are abusing loaded stretches, especially when they're not, you know, in a, you know, not particularly advanced themselves, um, you know, and doing it with people that kind of have no business doing that. And, and also that isn't relevant to their goal. Um you know, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to um, for you guys to hopefully go away and think about what you're doing on that front. Um, and, and try this stuff, because like I say, the people that will counter this and say, oh, but loaded stretches will work for years. It's like people haven't actually tried it in the way, you know, they've only tried it in that one way. So what happens if you try it for a few years where you don't go into this extreme position where you're tugging on the nerves? Like that example with the tricep stretch, based on where that long head tricep attaches to the scapula, like we can get like as soon as my scapula starts moving. So if I take my arm up in front of me and there's going to come a point 
around here now where my scapula is having to kind of lift and come around the scapula is now moving with my humerus so there's no extra change in length coming in the tricep there anyway so we don't need as much length in the long head tricep by doing this and this for me so i don't need to go so generally for most people for again those listening you look it's about 120 degrees yeah. of shoulder flexion that we're roughly getting into that's going to vary person to person based on the amount of tissue they've got and other stuff but if to go from that 120 degrees to 180 degrees, if you're thinking of the, the humerus or the arm, the difference between those degrees has to come with scapular motion. Whereas up until that point, we can get it from just humerus movement. So Luke's okay. got his lovely arm out okay. again. And again, this will be easy for people to see, but from this, well, from this bit here, it would be easy to see it from there. Like if I raise the arm up, oh shit, I'm going in the wrong direction. No, I'm not. Um, it's just so loud. If I raise the arm up in front of me, like I was just doing, there comes a point around here where the scapula basically then has to kind of move and upwardly rotate around the rib cage with the with the humerus. So if I want to get into that overhead position, so as soon as those points start moving together, there's no length being no length change occurring in the tricep. So it's just kind of a moot point to even go into that position because what you're basically doing is just compromising the stability of the scapula from the fact that other tissues from like the um, and then again we go like okay yes people have been implementing this kind of stuff for ages but there are differences between individuals as to what we're talking about and so that the level of position that one individual needs to get into to experience a stretch the experience of a stretch doesn't necessarily mean that the length and position of the tissue is going to be different to another and we're also what about a consideration for yeah that might cause hypertrophy but it also might cause some more stress than is required on joint tissues as well. And so, yeah, we might experience some hypertrophy in the short term, but what happens if I do that over the long term? You're not going to necessarily see that in a six to 12 week study, but it's still an important consideration for training longevity. Yeah. Sure. We spoke about the problems with kind of studying this stuff long term yesterday because it's not, yeah. wouldn't be the easiest. And we know, like, yeah, it's going to be unrealistic and unreasonable for us to expect that studies can go on this long or that we, they, even if it's ethical to, <laughs> to put someone into extreme positions that we, we suspect are going to be hugely problematic and then get them to do it for a decade. And who's going to fund that? Yeah, and all these exactly, other things. Yeah. That was the point I made yesterday. Like, imagine like the ethics committee that signs off on a, on a, uh, on a study that you know someone comes in and says, I want to test the effects of training someone in like a you know potentially vulnerable position for their sciatic nerve over the course of six to ten years in a longitudinal study where I tightly control for all the variables in every training session. Like basically they're saying, okay, we need people to commit for six to ten years of their life because that's kind of yeah. the, the time period that we'd need to see like, okay, what's the effects of this long term? Training in a specific way um and then also the hypothesis being they're probably going to get fucked up by the end of this so can you sign off and let me fuck these people up like no and also who wants to take part in that study for 10 years you're not allowed to change your training other than what these people are giving you can't go on your holidays and stuff like three times a week you go in and do bent over co-raised rdls for a decade in studies like that they basically expose you to that thing like three times a week like maybe like, and you've got that and like who's okay so then that has to be funded so someone's job has to be paid for for a decade in yeah. order to do this and these people need to be recompensed for coming into the place and you need to hire the gym or the place you're doing all this stuff like that money could be spent on cancer research i'm not gonna lie right there's 
you're going to run into some problems. And we hear the same ones if it comes to a conversation even about like gear use. Like, so no one's really funding like bodybuilding level gear use to tell you what the long-term effects of things are. So you end up in conversations about... On that note, like a lot mechanisms. of the discussions you're going to learn about how they even apply to use gear is all in like transgender females. Like, yeah. and then, it's right. like when I read this research, I'm like, yeah, well, it's 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 on women who are trying to become dudes, you know, because they're the only people who will let, <laughs> who can ethically kind of say, you know what, I'm going to use super physiologic levels of androgens to the point where I change gender, <laughs> you know. So you can, <laughs> there's some really good research out there on it, though. Like, there's some really good, research, yeah. Yeah. Some really good so, so we can't rely. So if there's people out here that be like, oh, but the studies say, like, none of the studies look at it context and what yeah. i'm pretty sure some of the loaded stretching stuff isn't actually doing the wingspan of birds um, yeah the, the classic one that showed hyperplasia was uh, yeah the wingspan of birds egg, egg, bird, essentially yeah. Yeah. egging a bird sounds real <laughs> just two people's pulling on a pigeon <laughs> <laughs> hold him down steve <laughs> <laughs> i mean you could make the claim that yeah birds exist on earth and so do humans therefore the same results will happen mm-hmm. Like you, you want to get that really I was half expecting one of you to be like, you seen these wings and just started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we can't, we can't like base, you know, that, that sort of stuff. There is like credible research to go on and it's just, you know, understanding certain neurodynamics and how nerves move and what's, you know, the, what happens when we breach these sorts of, you know, thresholds for nerves and things like that. And, you know, we can infer from that the long-term effects. Um, and Again, we go to like, science is wonderful, but it has and its limitations. And any good scientist should know and appreciate that. And so that's all we're kind of saying with, with almost any research that comes out in a field as complex as this, mm. it's almost impossible to control for all of the variables. And so everything must be taken with a pinch of salt. Mm-hmm. And then it has its place and just needs to be evaluated thoroughly, like we would try to evaluate anything in science. Mm. And we will definitely see these studies are being done unknowingly in certain people and uh, whether they have the balls to come out in you know, a few years time and be like, oh, yeah, that stuff, I, you know, my body's a bit fucked up and I train like this for the last 10 years and we can maybe make some correlation from the fact that, oh, yeah, the, you know, this bodybuilder just spent the last decade doing loads and loads of stretches and training really brutally in these ranges and now he's kind of fucked up. Like if that becomes this trend, which I suspect it will, and people that do this thing, then case closed. Um, I say that we'll have it. We'll, we'll, we'll at least have correlation, but we won't have causation. But um, but anyway, like that sort of stuff we got to consider, right? Um, so I hope that gives him an idea. Like implement loaded stretches for hypertrophy at your own um, discretion, and probably whilst after this is going to be where someone goes like. So you're saying only stay in the fully shortened position for safety. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're telling me that you're telling me that any loaded lengthening is terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. I do. Yeah, we're all the stuff. Yeah, where I wouldn't basically the takeaway from that is, and this is what I said yesterday in the presentation. Don't chase. You know, don't try and determine an exercise's utility or a load of stretch's utility based on the fact that you get a sensation of stretch because yeah, it's exactly. Not trying to understand why it's happening and why potentially yeah. it is there from a tissue-based perspective. And then, yeah. and then the annoying part of that is that still doesn't tell us that sensation means nothing either, by the oh, way. We can't. Yeah, sensation exactly. is often useful and usable right. feedback. It's yeah. just, it needs to be put into its context. Oh, yeah, and that's where, and that's where I think, you know, it comes in the thing like we speak about it. We've got a duty to understand exercise mechanics and exercise mechanics is the for, study of forces as they're applied to anatomy. Usually that conversation just extends as far as like connective tissue and muscles, but there's no reason why it should, well, in fact, there's every reason why it should also include nervous tissue, like neural tissue. 
um, because you're putting force through that as well and it gives us some feedback and has some effects positive or negative um Wait. anyway so that wraps that one up um so last uh, last two questions these ones are these ones are the kickers so if you made it this far people fuck me um, <laughs> I, bet, I bet there's a lot of people that are just like I'm fed up with these guys not using you know just relying on YouTube and everything. <laughs> um, there we go so the question itself was the question was oh someone's just asked how does sternum angle change an individual's chest growth I swear we covered that in like the yeah, last, last week Either the last episode or the one before. So, one Jimbo. yeah, um, possibly it's the one we haven't put out yet. Anyway, that's going out today. Anyway, um, so forearm hypertrophy purely genetic, or can you still grow regardless of that? Oh, <laughs> yeah, oh, forearm hypertrophy. Let's Paul take this one. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you stumbled on a good one here. Basically, forearm tissue is different to every other type of muscle tissue in the body. In the fact, <laughs> it just doesn't grow. It doesn't grow, and it, um, it basically it, you're born with them at a certain size, and once they, once yeah, that's it. Like basically, they don't go any higher than that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I like to say this about cars. We're well. never going to ask the question again, this guy. Um, but the uh, but no, I mean basically, what well, I mean, yeah, what were you going to say, Paul? I mean, if, I was going to make a joke, but I also say this about my calves. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know that I've ever seen anyone, you know, massively hypertrophy their forearms. Like I would say they're general. They're not. I don't want to say resistant to change because that wouldn't be true. They hyper. They're a muscle. They're made of muscle tissue. They can hypertrophy. Uh, I don't think I've ever actually properly looked at the. Um, no, I mean, hypertype breakdown of, of forearm yeah. stuff. I suspect it would be slower twitch stuff with yeah. lower propensity. Like these, you know, their tissue, but most of the tissue in the forearm are responsible for moving your wrist, moving. One your of the other points worth saying: a lot of this shit down here is tendon more than yeah. muscle yeah. belly. Thing like so, the belly doesn't actually, you know, yeah, more kind of extensions. That's the thing. You don't, you're not going to jack up stuff around here for good reason. Um, but the they're you know it's responsible for kind of like very fine movements of like fingers you know wrists hands things like that and i mean obviously a lot of them play a role in flexion extension of the forearm and stuff like that but fine motor movements you know they that and they're quite fatigue resistant you know generally so a lot of the time we'll find in those guys um you know they're not going to be 100 percent like type one fiber muscle that but they're probably going to see a fair amount of natural growth just from use over the years. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, but, and maybe you'll get some like certain like phenotype shifts based on exercises you do and stuff like that. But like the, the idea that, you know, um, you could get your forearm as jacked as your fucking, you know, quads and stuff like that. It's probably not like, not that logical based on the, just the size of the tissues as well. So I wouldn't expect you to see much growth. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're... They'll definitely still grow. It just will be a smaller amount of growth than yeah. most I mean, of the I other major yeah. I, I, you know, I played tennis. Well, I still play tennis, but played tennis a lot through my um, through my youth. Um, and um, I... Ross you know, masturbated I, a lot through his youth, so... I'm still in my youth. <laughs> people are seeing the fact that when you know whether they're right or left-handed the dominant hand will generally have a bigger you know a slightly larger forearm um, circumference and that's 
basically because the uh, um, tissues on that are going to be slightly more developed because you use them more frequently and stuff like that. And like from tennis, my fault. <laughs> from tennis you know my right form from was, tennis yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but also you know people you know you learn to one of the you know that's the thing learning to write you know that you're that's you know that requires kind of like fine movements of specific tissues quite often like down. i really wish most of you could see luke's demo of writing because this um, is the weirdest thing i've ever seen anyone do with that thumb before <laughs> i don't know like <laughs> Um, but anyway, like these sorts of tissues, I mean, that's like finger flexion, extension, combination, those things, which are both sides of the forearm. Like there's a reason why, you know, we see more growth in one side of, you know, one forearm than the other over our lifetime, because one side generally gets more use than the other. And given like the fiber type and, and what specific those tissues, they're going to get more growth. So one of the things you could do is learn to write both in both hands. That might help. Um, I'm right with a really heavy pen, obviously. Use both, use both hands when you're doing certain things. <laughs> Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> right with a really, really long pen with a low, low fucking bragging Hoffman. Just you know, we need two hands. <laughs> well, I'll just swap hands occasionally. <laughs> uh, um, you know, what about about tennis again, yeah. folks? Get your head out of the gut. No, but it, it, yeah, that could actually be quite an interesting way for someone to achieve forearm growth if it's, if it's a case of I want my, I want to balance out my left and right forearms. Maybe you know, it could be teach yourself to do things with your left arm that you currently only do with your right um, and you'll probably see that things catch up a little bit um and that might take a while um but the the training stuff like you know you can get a certain machine you know certain exercises you know i've got this ex this thing here that like oh the ball thing michael that you know it was this actually you know you put it on and you can you basically can do stuff like this and you can flip it <laughs> look like iron man flip it around and do it the other way as well um you know and there's like those power ball things that you know that they can be quite helpful they're used with climbing i mean like indoor climbing can be a really cool tactic for some people that because again that sort of activity requires quite a high force output but also you're getting them to you know getting those tissues to work for quite a long period of time so like rock you know there's a reason why like rock climbers and things like that generally have fairly well developed forearms and stuff yeah. A lot of time you'll find that a lot of the work that you'll do kind of like in traditional you know, kind of traditional programming, if you will. A lot of the kind of work that the forearm tissues are doing are kind of acting to stop anything moving a lot of the time. Yeah. You know, so a lot of like when you're pressing, they're acting an awful lot to keep things steady. When you're doing like heavy pulls and stuff like that, they're going to be acting a lot kind of almost isometrically or isoangularly even. You know, what I say, trying to word out there. But yeah, like direct work is going to do a little bit, but there's only, like, unless you easily say, get that kind of phenotype shift, probably only so far you're going to get with them that's going to be very noticeable. One thing I wouldn't, suggest it depends on the goal if your goal is still like i want to you know when you're training back yeah and you know some people will be like oh i'll just start not i won't use lifting straps and i'll just use grip and chalk and stuff like that you can do that but like if your goal is to train back and fatigue your back tissues if you start if you stop using lifting straps and use that your forearms and stuff will fatigue way before your back and you'll lose out on potential to stimulate those tissues lifting straps won't really detract from your ability to put force through the tissues of your of your forearm because most of them are involved in flexion of the elbow and things like that and extension um, and equally when you use lifting straps you're still gripping pretty fucking hard um you, you're basically you're you're obviously helping them to an extent but they're still having to work and probably working at a level that they're more likely to grow at because they're can they can stay in the game for a little bit longer so i'd say actually lifting straps could be quite useful um 
but yeah, so I wouldn't take this and be like, oh, stop using any kind of grip aid. Um, might not, that will shoot in the back when it comes to training other tissues. But, yep, yep. I, I mean, admittedly, that question, we were originally just going to troll on that one, but it actually ended up probably being quite useful. Um, anyway, the last one, which is definitely the most important. Um, can I still get drunk and be in shape? No. In fact, just drinking one alcoholic drink immediately puts on at least 12 kilos of body fat. That's what I've heard. Yeah. I've, I've heard there's a correlation between um, like alcohol and abdominal obesity. And if we just like you know, uh, extrapolate that and exaggerate that, basically, yeah, if you drink any alcohol, anything you eat gets converted to fat and it goes in your midsection. Um, and like literally, and it stays that way for like, six months after you've drunk so if like paul was to drink a beer today in six months time he would like well five five months time he'd still be like anything he ate would just go as fat in his midsection and then after the six month period he would then be in a position to build muscle again no one is ever going to want to ask us a question (laughs) (laughs) but i mean just take a look at the only way is essex boys and geordie shaw boys and stuff those guys are on it every weekend yeah (laughs) those boys diet is from cocktails and anabar <laughs> exactly. There's some Mexican supplementation going on in this in this particular mix, but uh, you know who doesn't want to do cocaine and clen? <laughs> uh, but to be fair, like um, I mean, yeah, when I mean, we see it a lot, there's loads of top level bodybuilders that drink. You know, I know yeah. Lex Lewis drinks still. Arnold. I mean, it would depend on how much it takes to get you drunk. I, I suppose. Mean, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, like, I don't think they'd be reckless, and it isn't the sort of thing that obviously it'd be like, well by all means have a fucking bottle of wine a night and crack on like yeah, yeah. um but yeah i mean you can definitely get drunk and still get in shape it depends on i mean is the insinuation there can i be drunk 100 percent of the time and still get in shape? <laughs> you, may, you may struggle but if you have like the odd night where you go out with your mates and you have a social life and you get drunk and enjoy life a bit i suspect you'll still be able to yeah um, get in shape. Okay. i still wouldn't advocate binge drinking i don't think there's really any excuse for that i would advocate binge drinking i think it's uh, a great way to live your life but, you know it's, but you know even if you were to do that you might feel shit for a few days but you're still going to be able to you know your body yeah. should still obey like the laws of thermodynamics thermodynamic. it depends what you mean by in shape like shredding, yeah. ready or like right. freely right at the same time you could just get so drunk you don't remember how fat you are so that's a good point it's a good point. That's a strong strategy. strategy. I do the client's prep. Um, like I've set his prep up and all his macros are just in alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> Units of alcohol. Like basically, I'm just like, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to eat. So I was like, sweet, if you're drunk, you'll you forget to eat. Um, so we're just no, gonna, we just keep him in a deficit from alcohol. It'd be fine. He might, he might not make it through the full 16-week prep before his liver gives out, but we'll, we'll give it a shot. Well, I think one of the bigger difficulties for big boys, to be honest, when they start drinking if they're in shape, is alcohol leads to what's best term the "ah fuck it" effect, yeah. whereby you want to eat everything tight, and then the next day you feel like shit, so you barely move, and then you just eat a fry up, get a McDonald's in, do all the good stuff. Like it's, it's start it's, Monday. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's all those things that generally go alongside being hammered, as much as it is being hammered that is really the issue. Yeah. So, so basically, can you still get? Can you get drunk and get in shape? No. I mean, I'm drunk right now, so. <laughs> well, you can, but the proof of the, you know, the, what was it? Something's in the poison. The devil's in the dose. Something like that. I totally lost my What? Just don't do it too much. <laughs> the proof is in the poison. 
I lost it. My head was gone. I mean, that bit like, like, is in the notes, I think, is what you were looking yeah, for. Yeah, but... you're probably something. <laughs> As a genuine case study. That green monster that you pretended was monster earlier, is that like absinthe that we just... Yeah, that's, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> As a genuine case study, though, the, like um, Paul's skeleton in the background is not a model. It was his roommate who tried to diet and get, and get in shape using alcohol, and it ended very badly. Um, yeah, yeah. But I keep him around for his memory. Yeah. Hell of a guy. Hell of a guy. <laughs> and on that bombshell. Um, <laughs> no, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. But yeah, I mean... Hopefully that was relatively useful. Got geeky at times. Another one where it probably pays to flick through the YouTube if you listen to this on um, podcast and just look at those segments and stuff that we kind of use. The more surprising one is Ross didn't mention The Lord of the Rings once. Oh, in that. God. I'm fasting from The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm probably going to watch it this weekend actually I feel like I really want someone to ask some questions about like Marvel and stuff like that I'd love to talk about I want someone to watch like literally just ask a lot of the ring questions because I can guarantee you I know the answer so <laughs> whatever it is as obscure as you like how much that. does it take to get a hobbit drunk uh, well hobbits generally tend to drink quite a bit so it's probably more than it would be for most people yeah those guys are animals relative yeah. to size I feel like a hobbit can go yeah they drink a lot like elves can't get drunk because they got rapid metabolism at all, or they just don't drink. Elves can't get drunk. Mm. Yeah, they're there's a quote in the book. Um, they, they kind of they play on it in the movies where Legolas is drinking with Gimli, and uh, and getting Gimli's like, Oh, I've got you on this one. And like, and then Legolas after like 30 drinks is just like, Oh, I feel something, you know. And uh, <laughs> like, are you telling me that, that Captain America was based off Legolas's exploits? <laughs> probably <laughs> like, okay, like, I've, I've watched maybe two Marvel movies oh mate I didn't get that reference either I was yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm get drunk. anyone who's a true Marvel fan will know that like there's a bit where he, he's like like mourning his mate trying to get drunk and, and then he's basically like yeah so I'm, my metabolism's too fast and I just burn off alcohol I can't get drunk it's like oh shit <laughs> ah, hey. um, got it. yeah the um yeah, and then, and then he, that, that gets referenced a few times more in some of the other super soldiers but yeah like that's Guys, we can we can have a seriously geeky episode if people want to provide the question. What yeah. about a dwarf versus hobbit? A dwarf versus hobbit in like a fight? <laughs> in a drinking contest. Well, dwarves are definitely will drink more. Um, you know, but he get more drunk, but they'll be able to tolerate more drink as well. You know, they love a celebration. Them dwarves. These are the important questions. <laughs> can they get in shape though? Give me pretty. Oh, I have not seen a jack. Story. Is he? Gimli's pretty jacked. Have you, ever, have you ever seen a fat dwarf? No, you haven't. Have you ever seen a jacked dwarf? <laughs> you know, we can't, we can't, we can't conclude I've anything. I've never seen a shredded dwarf either. I'm pretty yeah, sure. They're very, they're, very, they're very humble. <laughs> Gimli was a bit of a pork pie. It's not how it's like he's, just, he's, covered, he's covered in gold and mithril and he's good. <laughs> I mean, Gimli definitely has the nose of an alcoholic. You know that kind of like nose growth that occurs with old farmer boys that have been drinking their entire lives and like it swells up bulbous style. Yeah, exactly. one of those guys. What about what about a hobbit versus an ent? <laughs> a tree. <laughs> an, ent will, an ent will just take too long to pour a pint. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. What about Tom Bombadil? Can he drink? Let's not talk about Tom Bombadil. He's a confusing subject. He's so. <laughs> what about, about, nobody um, knows what he is. Nobody knows if it's. Uh, you know, there was something theories about who he is. So, you know, there was an alternate ending to Lord of the Rings. Uh, I don't even know if you know this, Ross. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
basically like they get to Mordor and like Sauron's just chilling and basically Frodo challenges him to a drink off and they win. <laughs> <laughs> I read about that one. That's when I talk Sauron, Sauron, but and the, the the wager is that Sauron has to jump into the fire with the ring and the. <laughs> On an actual serious note, have you ever seen the alternate clip of the Battle of the Black Gate? And instead of the mouth of Sauron coming to Aragorn, actual Sauron does. Have you really? seen it? Yeah, so there was a scene that they were going to use, but obviously because it wasn't as canon. Um, there's like this kind of like this kind of light. It's basically supposed to be Sauron as Anatar, which is what his actual name is. Um, so you can go and you can look it up and it's like basically Aragorn like having a fucking having a fight with actual Sauron. Well, like, I don't know, he would get dominated. Like, yeah, he probably would. Sarah's badass, bro. Yeah. <laughs> that's the whole. That's what they're trying to stop. It. Like Sarah can't come back because he'll fuck us all up. <laughs> you know, and you can't really expect yeah, that. Would have been the best yeah. reaction though. Like he comes out and like Sarah's like giving it the big and they're like, "Hang on a sec, mate. like we're here to stop you. Come back. You're already back. <laughs> You're already here. We'll do it." Gandalf is so underplayed of how powerful he is in the movies. It's not even funny. People, they yeah, use... I, I remember saying to you that I reckon Dumbledore would take him. And you were like, <laughs> oh, fuck no. Fuck. I'm, 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 I'm like a series of stories, just how dumb a statement that is. <laughs> so, <laughs> Gandalf, is base, Gandalf is basically like a magic angel god, basically, is what he is. He, <laughs> basically, what he is, like he's a Meyer. Like, he just takes the form of an old man so he doesn't seem as intimidating for people. He's not old at all. He's a badass super person. Like he, he just takes on the form of an old man. He does. <laughs> the only reason all the blue wizards take the form of old men so that people will listen to them. That's he the only reason they do it. Well, but inside that, he looks like Chris Hemsworth in his prime. Probably, yeah. He's pretty fucking jacked. <laughs> they severely cripple him in the uh, in the films for for what reason? They cripple him. How powerful he is! Like he's just as powerful, if not more powerful, than Sauron is. What the fuck? Why don't they yeah. just send Gandalf then? Yeah, why don't you just walk in and be like, get an eagle, go do the shit. There's, cer- there's certain rules. There's certain rules that the Maya can't technically, unless they're told to, can't act upon the will of the men or the male of the people of Middle Earth. They're there to protect them. Now, the that's why Sauron was. They could have that's if that was it. In the in the meeting in Rivendell, they're like, he's like, I can't be told to act like, say, like, I can't, or like, whatever. And then he's just sliding a bit of paper. I'll just yeah, say like, this. To that's that's, that's why Gandalf didn't do it himself. You, mate, but if you want to take the ring and sort this out, like, that's one of the reasons why Gandalf didn't do it himself. How you know? dumb the rest of the fucking fellowship? They couldn't have. One of them couldn't have just been like, maybe we just ask Gandalf to do it, and then he says yes. No, well, he can't because he can't. He's not allowed. It's the rules. He's, te- he's technically not a part of the everyday goings on. Like he's there to kind of keep an eye on people. So the reason he couldn't go and do it is because it's against the rules. Like in reality, if it wasn't against the rules, like, fuck, I'll do it. You know, <laughs> like, he'll just show up, drop it in, leave. You know, like, no, but, like it doesn't make like, just walk to the middle of Mordor and people and just be like, anyway, people just, just like, ping, boom, boom. one does not simply walk into Mordor, cut to Gandalf, strolling casually through Mordor, just skateboarding through. <laughs> yeah, but that's good. The dog and legendary episode, there's so many rules that, like, that's why, like, the eagles can't technically do it because they don't have actual will. Like, they, they're, like, they're tied to Manway. They're like slaves. They, they can pick him up afterwards. Like, because well, that because they would, they didn't pick them up because they wanted to. They were told to. Well, they couldn't have been told to take them. <laughs> yeah, can't do it. It's the rules. Fuckers. These rules are fucking ridiculous. Uh, read the try read the Silmarillion. You'll learn all of that. No. It's, the hardest book, it's the hardest book in the world to read for the first like. 150 pages but then it gets a little bit easier because the whole it. thing is spoken through like kind of like um, like it's almost like analogous like and then it's like poetry you know? so it's just it's like it's very very hard to read initially. yeah to be fair I, I, I started the audio bit for Lord of the Rings and I had to like honestly I had to give up on it because yeah it's hard it is hard to read yeah, but the, the narrator like he um, 
he like he's got an annoying voice as it is, and there's loads of songs, uh, and he, and he yeah. literally sings the songs, and the guy can't sing worth shit. And he, <laughs> Andy Andy Circus has brought out. Go uh, on, they're like probably like three minute songs in some bits, and I was like, what? Like J.R. Tolkien, you had far too much time on your hands, and also yeah. Andy Sir- Andy Circus done a version of the Hobbit audiobook that's sick. Yeah. I feel like he like the person. Oh, Stephen Fry to do it. Yeah, they should have got someone like. Stephen. I think there is Stephen Fry doing the Hobbit. Is that? I think, I think so. it was in the film, wasn't he? So, yeah, that was brutal to listen to. I was like, it got to the, I was just skipping songs in the end. Fry singing. has godlike narrator status. Yeah, they would start singing in this audiobook, and I was like, skip that shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Ross would be ashamed, but I'll, I'm gonna do it. Yeah, the Hobbit, the Hobbit, the Hobbit audiobook with Stephen Fry. Here we go. That'll He's be... done all the Sherlock Holmes ones recently, and the Harry Potter ones. Oh, the Harry Potter ones are excellent. Phenomenal, phenomenal. I grew up with those bad boys, and anyway. We'll wrap that up. So yeah, next time we put questions out, people, um, we want nerdy life. Yeah, put some nerd ones in, like you know, yeah. bit of Marvel, bit of um, bit of a uh, bit of Lord of the Rings, bit of Star Wars, bit of Harry Potter. We've all been there. Imagine, I feel like we'd lose half our following, but it'd be worth it. I don't care. Follow them. The following we would have would be unbelievably valuable, though. Yeah, they'd, exactly. all, they'd all know their shit. They'd all watch Lord of the Rings with me. Yeah. I would. Be, really I'd, be, I'd basically be their ruler. So like, yeah, I'm, I'm super keen. I'm super keen. <laughs> anyway sweet people sweet have a well thank you for listening and we will um, we'll catch you on the next one yep have a wonderful day everybody cheers guys thank you for listening to the Muscle Mentors podcast just a quick shout out to our sponsors who support the channel and everything we do in the realms of education and coaching within the industry firstly our original sponsor Supplement Needs they've been with us from the start if you're seeking the highest quality supplements on the market particularly organ support and health orientated products you can use code muscle mentors at checkout for 10 percent off your order precision prep our recently introduced food preparation partner delivering the finest quality meal prep across the uk featuring their new pro prep range a concept closely developed with us to solve an issue we see day to day with time limitations and nutritional compromise if you're seeking the highest quality nutrition delivered to your door for the best price Look no further. Use code MUSCLEMENTALS at checkout for 15% off your first order and 10% thereafter. And lastly, RAR Optics, the highest grade blue blue light blocking glasses on the market with the slickest style. In a world filled with artificial light, particularly those with high screen time, I can certainly say I'm one of them. These can be a real game changer for sleep quality and recovery, something we use personally on a day-to-day basis. Grab yourself a pair by using code MUSCLEMENTALS at checkout for money off all orders. Once again, thank you for your continued support. Until next time.